Hi. My, my, my name is Tony Thaxton. Like anyone else, I love a great album. But I also love those strange albums that might make you wonder how and why they even exist. But, but, but I'm not here to make fun of them. I'm here to celebrate them and t- t- tell their story. This is Bizarre Albums. Today's episode, Freddy's Greatest Hits from 1987. school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Tell Your Children was a 1936 movie funded by a church group intended to be shown to parents as a morality tale trying to teach them about the dangers of marijuana. It showed high school teenagers getting addicted to marijuana and their lives spiral out of control, leading to things like murder, rape, suicide, and insanity. The rights to the film changed hands several times over the years, leading to several name changes, most famously under the name Reefer Madness. In 1972, Keith Stroop, the founder of Normal, a nonprofit organization whose aim is to decriminalize marijuana, found a copy of the film at the Library of Congress archives. Normal started showing Reefer Madness on college campuses throughout California for a fundraising campaign. This led to the film becoming a big underground hit with the college crowds. Audiences loved its unintentional campiness and bad production values. New Line Cinema founder Robert Shea heard about the movie's newfound popularity, so he went to a screening. He realized that the movie's copyright had expired and was now public domain, and he was able to get an original copy from a collector and started distributing the film nationally and it became one of the first big successes for New Line Cinema. However, by the time the 1980s rolled around, New Line had hit a financial slump and needed a hit badly. Fresh off of finishing his movie Swamp Thing, writer-director Wes Craven was trying to find a home for his new horror movie that he'd written. It had been repeatedly rejected by multiple studios. Eventually, New Line Cinema agreed to produce Craven's film. In this clip from 2006's Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher film, Robert Shea talks about New Line's financial situation when making the film. The difficulty was that since a bank wouldn't loan us money to make this movie, I had to not only undertake to develop the script, which I did, but then go out and try to raise the financing. Eight weeks before you begin principal photography, all of a sudden there's 50 people working. You've got hairdressers and set designers and production coordinators and all kinds of other people, and they all have to be paid. So we had to pay them out of our own pocket solely on my belief that we could somehow pull this financing together. It was extremely harrowing and anxiety-provoking, all the bad stuff you you want to experience watching a movie but not have in real life. The film's original budget was $700,000, but by the time it was finished, it ended up at over $1 million. They shot it in 26 days. The film was released on November 9, 1984, and it made its entire budget back in its first weekend. Whatever you do, don't fall She's the only one who can stop it if she fails. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. <laughs> No one will survive. 
of the hills have eyes and last house on the left a new masterpiece in fantasy terror nightmare on elm street imdb.com's description of a nightmare on elm street reads the monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely death in this clip from 2006's going to pieces the rise and fall of the slasher film Wes Craven discussed the origin of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I had saved these clippings of the news story about some young men dying in the middle of severe nightmares. His father was a physician and had given him sleeping pills and the kid supposedly was taking them and they had come out of Southeast Asia war camps so the family just assumed that he had been traumatized. He said, no, no, it's different. There's, there's something stalking me in my dream. I don't want to sleep. And he actually kept himself alive or awake. And finally he fell asleep and the family you know, carried him up to his bed and put him to bed. And they went to their own beds and then heard screaming and, you know, thrashing and they ran into his room. And he was just screaming and kicking on his bed. And by the time they got to him, he just fell silent and he was dead. Oh, then th- they found in his closet there was a coffee pot that he had hidden in there with black coffee. And they found all the sleeping pills he hadn't taken any. It was like, holy shit, this guy knew he was going to die if he slept. And you have to sleep. How terrifying is that? The film's killer, Freddy Krueger, kills his victims with a bladed leather glove that he'd crafted in a boiler room where he takes his victims. He was eventually burned alive by a mob of angry parents. His body dies, but his spirit lives on in the nightmares of the kids living on Elm Street, preying on them by entering their dreams and killing them. Freddy Krueger was played by a then 37-year-old Robert England. He'd been appearing in films since the mid-70s. In his early film appearances, England was often typecast playing a nerd or a redneck. In this clip from 2013's Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street legacy documentary, England and Craven talk about his casting. My agent had suggested this film called A Nightmare on Elm Street with this this guy, Wes Craven. And I went on this interview, you know, expecting to meet the Prince of Darkness. And there was erudite, tall, preppy Ralph Lauren attired Wes Craven there. He looked kind of semi-geeky and he was younger, much younger than I was looking for. A Nightmare on Elm Street opened at 165 cinemas across the U.S. Its $1.2 million box office gross in its first week made it an instant commercial success. It went on to gross over $25 million at the domestic box office. New Line Cinema became known as the house that Freddy built. Its success led to multiple sequels. The third installment was released on February 27, 1987, titled A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. During its opening weekend, it debuted at number one, grossing $8.9 million. A Nightmare on Elm Street had officially become mainstream. Freddy merchandise had started hitting the shelves everywhere. Even though Freddy was a child killer, that didn't stop companies from making things like Freddy dolls and kids' pajamas. There were watches, Halloween masks. Freddy was everywhere. Here's Robert England in the Never Sleep Again documentary recalling the strangest piece of Freddy merchandise that he had seen. The strangest piece of Freddy merchandise was Valiant in St. Petersburg. It's said in Cyrillic, take one and he will come for you. Unlicensed, I'm sure. Tough luck, new line. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In part three, music also started becoming a big piece of the franchise. The original film already had a memorable score from Charles Bernstein. And there was also Freddie's theme song, which was sung by the jump-roping girls throughout the series. It was already written and included in the script when Bernstein had started writing the score. Alan Pasqua, a musician who was dating Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy Thompson in parts one and three, came up with the idea to set the melody to one, two, buckle my shoe. Bernstein added Pasqua's contribution into his soundtrack. Part 3 was the first time the franchise used an established band to contribute to the soundtrack. Los Angeles heavy metal band Dokken wrote the title track for the film. On February 10, 1987, Dream Warriors by Dokken was released as a single. It charted at number 22 on Billboard's Hot Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. Perhaps it was the success of that single that led to possibly the strangest piece of Freddie merchandise ever released. In 1987, Rick Records released Freddie's Greatest Hits by the Elm Street Group. Barry Manilow! Na-na-na-na-na! Freddie's Greatest Hits was basically a novelty album from a group of studio musicians calling themselves the Elm Street Group. The album has nine songs that are a mix of covers and original songs. Track one is a cover of Do the Freddie, the original version of the song was a number 18 hit in the U.S. for the incredibly coincidentally named Freddie and the Dreamers in 1965. The original version of Do the Freddy was spelled F-R-E-D-D-I-E, but for this version, the I-E was changed to Y. The Elm Street group consisted of Stephanie Davey, Neil Posner, and Kevin Kelly, who also produced the album. 
I got to speak with Kevin Kelly on the phone earlier this week about how the project came about. You know, I think the person who knows all that is a guy by the name of Rick Blyweiss, who worked at Polygram Records for a number of years and, um, you know, bounced around the record industry back in the 70s and 80s and so on. And uh, I had a recording studio and I also produced stuff and, and I had done some work with him and for him uh, over the years leading up to that. And he just he kind of just showed up one day on my doorstep and said, you know, I have a wacky idea. I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but uh, we think we have the clearance from, I forget the name of the film company even, you know, the right cinema. Exactly. And uh, to develop a product that would include Robert England doing, you know, some sort of acting up on it. And he said, but what we really need is you know, a whole bunch of kind of campy, ghoulish, you know, Halloweeny songs. He said, we're going to call it Freddie's Greatest Hits, and we're going to have Freddie kind of sing and lead on a couple of them, or at least kind of overdubbing on them to the extent that somebody who is interested in the character might want to buy it as just like an, another piece of merchandise having to do with that whole film series. The album also lists additional players Mike Braun, Larry Later, Bob Stander, Alan Brewer, and Richie Conmata. Richie Conmata, Billy Joel's sax player, was on a couple of songs. And the, and the running joke is I spelled his last name wrong on the album credit, <laughs> which, which he never lets me forget. He's an old friend and all that. You know, I spelled it Canmata. <laughs> yes. Track two was written by the Elm Street group singer Stephanie Davey and producer Kevin Kelly. Dance or else. For track three, it's a song that in 2017 was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or artistically significant. It's Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour from 1965. way he kind of spoon-fed the idea to me was he said we have a couple ideas for songs that we we think would just really be funny kind of slash campy whatever you want to call it if he you know kind of was involved in kind of bellowing over them and making his maniacal laughs in various places and we want it to be poppy we want it to be you know real approachable and and in some cases silly and in some cases dark you know in april of 1958 the Everly Brothers released All I Have to Do is Dream as a single. They recorded it live in just two takes, and it also featured legendary country guitarist Chet Atkins. It was the only single to ever hit number one on all of the Billboard singles charts simultaneously. Almost 30 years later, it was covered by a movie serial killer.
Though the album is titled Freddy's Greatest Hits, Freddy only has a few lines in each song, occasionally doing the Freddy laugh, and he doesn't really ever sing. He is performed by Robert England, though. So, the, you know, what was ironic about it was we never got to meet Robert England, or I didn't. And what we did was, you know, kind of roughed out demos of the songs, you know, in terms of rhythm section and, and that kind of thing. And like, you know, put a couple of lead vocals on, you know, together and got BPMs for tunes and actually wrote a detailed script for each of the songs for places that we wanted Robert England to like either sing along and he was going to go in and do a couple of recording sessions on the West Coast. You know, we were located in New York. He was going to go in and, and do these sessions and send back the tapes. And there was also, they didn't want folks to know how they processed Freddie's voice, you know, the trademark processing that they did in the movies, you know, to make him sound even more maniacal than the actor already was. So what wound up happening was, you know, we sent this great big long script with like, you know, please say this and do that. And here's set a metronome to this tempo while you scan these words and so on. And he's, and this is obviously in the pre-digital audio workstation era. This was all on tape. You know, he sent back a quarter inch tape like a voiceover tape In what is maybe the most random cover on the album, Freddie and the Elm Street group cover Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Watch it now. Watch it, watch it. The rest of the album is a handful of original tunes by Stephanie Davey and or Kevin Kelly. The back of the album has a note saying, None of the songs or recordings contained in this album have been a part of or been embodied in the soundtrack of any Nightmare on Elm Street motion picture. And this album is not the soundtrack for any of the Nightmare on Elm Street motion pictures. The album also notes that it is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, and that photos of Freddy Krueger and the Freddy voice appeared under license from New Line Cinema. Freddy's Greatest Hits was mostly ignored when it was released. In 2017, it was reissued on Strange Disc Records. There was even an exclusive variant to Mondo, pressed on Freddy Sweater Green and Red Striped Vinyl, limited to 400 copies worldwide. Despite the album's performance, the world was far from done with Freddy, or even music featuring Freddy. The next sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, had a theme song by the Fat Boys, featuring a rapping Freddy. Performed by Robert England. That song was called Are You Ready for Freddy? And if you want to hear more about Are You Ready for Freddy? 
This week's bonus episode of Bizarre Singles will drop on Halloween and will be all about that song. So make sure you're a patron over at patreon.com slash bizarre albums to hear that episode. A Nightmare on Elm Street propelled New Line Cinema, Wes Craven, and Robert England to new levels. But it also launched the career of an actor who, when he was cast in A Nightmare on Elm Street, was trying to be a musician. Later, he would return to music several times. His name? Johnny Depp. But that is for another time. Thank you for listening to Bizarre Albums. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps people find the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Bizarre Albums, and I'm at Tony Thaxton. You can also like Bizarre Albums on Facebook and visit BizarreAlbums.com. And if you still want more Bizarre Albums in your life, sign up for weekly bonus episodes of Bizarre Singles and more at Patreon.com slash Bizarre Albums. And as always, if you know of a Bizarre Album you'd like to hear featured, please tweet the show. I'd love to hear from you. You can even email me at bizarrealbums at gmail.com. My name is Tony Thaxton, and I'll see you next time on Bizarre Albums.